from the AM-FM 24-7 radio network, broadcasting from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is August 18th, a fantastic Friday, wherever you are. If it's not fantastic, you're going to make it that way, right? Well, I have a fantastic show for you today. We're going to have Maura Thomas with us in a few minutes to talk about her new book, Everyone Wants to Work Here. But before that, I'm excited to welcome Dan Shapiro to the show. A amazing career, several entrepreneurial endeavors that you may have heard of. He was the founder and CEO of Photo Bucket and then started a company that he eventually sold to uh, Google. It was a shopping comparison website. He served some time at Google and then, thank goodness, came back out and became an entrepreneur again. He did a Kickstarter campaign, which was the most successful game campaign of all time for Robot Turtles, a programming fundamental teaching product. I love anyone learning to code. But today, we're going to talk about the most recent company that he is the founder of called Glowforge. They are, of course, the people that make the 3D laser printers, and they have a new one coming out. Dan, welcome. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So let's start with the new stuff and then we'll go backwards. Tell us about what's happening now with Glowforge and why you're so excited about it. Well, for uh, the last eight years, we've been uh, building the uh, Glowforge Plus and Pro 3D laser printers, which are these incredible devices. They're the size of uh, like a suitcase that you check that sit on your desktop and enable small businesses to create things incredibly fast out of thick and beautiful materials that enable schools around the country, over 4,000 schools to make things, supporting everything from art classes to robotics labs to uh, the drama department, using them for props, you name it. It's incredibly easy to use and uh, works across hundreds of different materials. So totally different than traditional 3D printing, which builds about a plastic layer by layer. This actually, you put in a piece of material like plywood or uh, acrylic or leather or even chocolate, and then it can cut and engrave the material to produce the final result, subtractive instead of additive. The big news is we just launched the Glowforge Aura, which instead of being a five to $7,000 investment, you can go pick up from your local Michaels or Joanne craft store for under $1,200. It's the size of a, a briefcase. It sits on your table, chair, craft room, what have you. It is the world's first craft laser. And it can work in all those amazing materials that our performance series products can. Uh, and it's, uh, but it's small and it's beautiful. It's adorable and it's light and it's easy to carry around. And I'm so excited to bring it into the world. And it has a pretty orange cover. Exactly. It is an adorable orange. If you looked at it and you looked at the original gumdrop iMac and found some sort of, you know, distant resemblance, you wouldn't be mistaken. It does look like 
Oh, it has a little bit of Mac design in it. Did you steal someone from Apple? Uh, we did not, but uh, my co-founder, our CTO, who led the industrial design, uh, has an amazing eye for such things. And, uh, uh, you know, in celebration, I sent him an old tangerine iMac I found off of eBay, which was, which was good for a chuckle. Yes. All right. Amazing product. And you're right. That will be a game changer. So additive as opposed to, or subtractive, subtractive as opposed to additive. Right. That's a huge difference. So say uh, I want to make a 3d little church or something. And I, when I put in a chunk of plastic and it would carve it out. So you've got a number of different choices, but uh, folks who do exactly that generally find that the easiest way is you put in a piece of plywood and then it'll cut all the different pieces and it cuts with precision down to a thousandth of an inch. So it can make tabs that are serrated. So they snap together and hold together without glue. And you can assemble that thing that you've created once the print is finished. It is much beloved for use in, in miniatures and the like. But because it can cut and engrave, that church is going to have all the detail in place. It can be made out of a beautiful material. You could you could make uh, faux stained glass windows out of colored acrylic and inset those pieces. Uh, the you know the the um, columns would have the the images of the uh, that you choose engraved on them, and it can put all that detail in in a way that's really beautiful, made of these natural materials, very different from what you get from a a traditional additive process where the whole thing is sort of one uniform uh, chunk of plastic. Right. I've never actually, I don't know that I've seen something that came out of a Glowforge. I'm trying to remember, maybe an I iPad. I guarantee that- you've seen you've seen hundreds of things. You just probably didn't know it. Perhaps. Because things that you make on a laser look like they are handcrafted and in some sense they are look like they're handcrafted designs just kind of using the ultimate power tool when i go into like any uh uh uh, earring store i'll invariably see dozens of of products that are created with laser technology right there our customers are making jewelry and they're making miniatures and they're making leather bags and like and unlike 3d printing you can't tell because it looks like it is beautifully handcrafted and because the technology is fundamentally this top-down 2.5D, so it can cut, it can engrave, it can 3D sculpt the surface, so it can carve the surface, it's much easier to design for. You can, of course, you can use CAD software, you can use Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop, but you can also use Google Slides. You can also just draw with a pen and it'll scan your drawing and turn it into a, a digital design. Anything that outputs a PDF can create a design that you can fabricate out of these beautiful and wonderful materials. So we have uh, lasers in kindergarten classes where people are using it to you know, create puppets and uh, kids are building their own toys. We have it in university research departments where people are using it to create research tools, uh, You know, NASA, you name it. it. It is powerful and simple enough that it can span that entire range. Very impressive. Let's go back in history, Dan. How'd you get the company started? Where'd the idea come from? How'd you raise the money? Give us an entrepreneurial history lesson. So you mentioned robot turtles. Um, this was, I, I just sold spark by to Google, spent a couple of years there, um, on the ads team. 
uh, reporting to the, uh, the VP of ad products and boy, getting to see how, how that sausage is made. And, uh, I have twins, boy and a girl. Uh, they're now 14, but this is 10 years ago. So they were four. I love board games. And I was horrified at the notion of having to play Candyland with them. And one day I was just driving into work and I was thinking about board games and I was thinking about coding and how empowering it is to know how to use technology. And I was thinking about the, uh, the, the sort of intersection of these things. And I had this sort of half-baked idea about what if you made a board game where the game was that the kids are the programmers and the parents are the computer. And what do programmers do? They boss around computers. And what do kids love to do more than anything? Boss around grown-ups. So the idea was, what if you made a board game where the kids were bossing around grown-ups by programming them? And I came home, printed out some game pieces on an inkjet printer, laminated them with a laminator I, I bought off of Amazon, and started playing this game with my kids, who loved it. And started telling some friends at work at, uh, at Google at the time about it, and they asked for copies. In, in a completely unrelated matter, I was helping a friend who was in television consult on a TV show that involved crowdfunding. And, uh, and I was thinking a lot about crowdfunding as well. And I thought, maybe, maybe I could put together enough people on Kickstarter to get a minimum order made so this could be a real board game and other people could enjoy it as well. So I, I called up a board game company and I said, uh, how would you make this? And I talked to them about the parts and they talked to me about the, what they had on hand and what sort of pieces were inexpensive. So I could design the game to make it easy to manufacture, which I would find out later was almost unheard of in the sort of, you know, amateur game business. Most people came with their masterpiece and then tried to figure out how to manufacture, but I had a background in, in manufacturing. So I called them up and we talked about how it would work. And then I put the Kickstarter up. And it was really simple. Um, I talked to some folks in the board game industry and they said, this will never get published because parents want to send their kids off to play games. They don't want to be forced to play the games with them. So a game that requires a parent is a non-starter. And I said that. I said, look, Kickstarter, folks, this isn't going to happen unless we want it to because the game industry has decided that games like this shouldn't exist. That's not the thing people want. But if you want it, let me know and we'll make some. And it turned into a huge outpouring of support. It wound up being the most backed board game in Kickstarter history at the time. And, uh, and so I got, instead of the 1,000 orders I was hoping for, I wound up with about 25,000 orders. And what was going to be just a little spare time hobby turned into a leave of absence and ultimately a year of being a sort of mini board game magnate, uh, a one-person company producing, shipping, and delivering this product. And it was in the middle of this process, while I was designing pieces and prototyping parts, that I discovered this old backwater 1960s and 70s factory technology called CNC laser cutting engraving. These machines were $10,000 and up. The one at my local, local makerspace charged me $3 a minute to use. $3 a minute, $180 an hour, but they were like magic. I could take a design and push a button and something beautiful would come out the other side compared to 3D desktop printing, which was kind of lumpy plastic slowly. 
I fell in love. I wound up with an industrial carbon dioxide cutting laser that I imported from a factory in China, installed in my garage, and started using it to create things. That was the genesis of Glowforge. All right, let me interrupt for a second, Dan. So what happened with the game? How many copies did you end up selling and can people still get it? Uh, you can still get it today. It's on Amazon. It's in game shops around the country. Um, I still, I just got my quarterly uh, earnings report. I liked it to, to answer the question. I licensed it to ThinkFun, which is one of the greatest uh, publishers of educational board games. And they've been publishing it ever since. So I can, uh, I get the, the royalty checks and don't have to do anything else, which is great because I have a new company to run. But yes, you can buy it on Amazon today. Robot Turtles. And what ages is it appropriate for? It is, <laughs> I think it's labeled for uh, four to 10. I had a lot of folks say, can my three-year-old do it? And what they expect me to say is it depends on the three-year-old. But the answer is it depends on the parent. <laughs> if you're very patient and don't mind just playing and aren't trying to like get them excited about the rules, then you can gently introduce it. But you know, at four, kids are really ready and it's a wonderful experience to play with your kid. All right. Interesting. I will check that out. We love board games at our house and you know, my wife and I generally don't want to be involved with our children. We generally don't have any <laughs> desire to associate with them. Uh, they're so immature and young, you know, right. Right. So, uh, I didn't know that they came that way, but anyway, uh, we do enjoy playing a board game with them. And so we, Love Risk and, of course, the Ticket to Ride series, uh, one of the best games ever, um, Ticket to Ride and Risk. We've, we love those. Are those on your shelf as well? I'm literally looking at my copy right now because my basement is in the, the board. Sorry, my office is in the dungeon, which is also the board game basement. So Ticket to Ride is a favorite. Risk is great. Um, my kids early on got excited about the game Lords of Waterdeep because they saw us playing it and wanted to play. And so while it's a very sort of, you know, complicated, sophisticated game, my wife and I, when they were like, I want to say six or seven, uh, we simplified it down where it didn't require any reading because they were just getting started reading. <laughs> and so we removed all the, we removed all the rules that, uh, that had secret cards so that we could read the cards out loud. And it's been a favorite of her since 10 years later, uh, we still play that one together. That and uh, Sheriff of Nottingham is a, a recent favorite. Highly recommended. Great family game. Well, we only play games if they've sold 100 million copies. So that's what we're like, <laughs> entry, you know. That's what gets your, that's what gets your, uh, gets your attention. Right, so I yeah, actually um, haven't heard of the two new games that you mentioned, but... Uh, um, well, then I would recommend Carcassonne, which has sold uh, a ridiculous number of copies and is like a latter day dominoes, but a lot more exciting than dominoes. What's the game about? Uh, uh, it, something about Ka'a. You know what I'm talking uh, about? Settlers of Catan. Yes. That is an amazing game. I actually know the, the creators and have created a gorgeous custom Settlers of Catan uh, deck or board. I may say so myself on the laser by laser wow. cutting each piece out of different, uh, different, uh, types of plywood. It is beautiful. And if you look for Glowforge Catan, C-A-T-A-N online, you can see all sorts of people interpreting that 
game in their own style. That's it's a favorite at our house too. All right. So Dan, we interrupted your story. You were as far as the board game and through that, you discovered this other technology. Yes. So pick so up again, CNC, there, please. Yeah. CNC laser cutting engraving has been around since the seventies, but it was really just a sort of small machine shop or maker space. You had to have an expert do it for you. These machines were giant. They were smelly. They were unbelievably difficult to use. Um, typically required a laser tech for maintenance for them who'd have to come in regularly to fix it up. Uh, required specialized training, safety equipment, and the like. They were pretty daunting. And I had one in my garage and wound up spending you know days just getting it to work and weeks figuring out the software. And then through all the horrible disaster of using it, I'd get to this moment. I'd push a button and it would glow softly and something beautiful would come out. And so I started inviting folks I knew in the Seattle startup community, because I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, inviting folks over to come see it. And I would make tchotchkes for them. I'd engrave something, or I'd make a business card holder with their logo. And they'd show up, and they'd see this intimidating machine, and they'd say, you know, Dan, you lost it. And then I'd print something and say, okay, well, that was pretty cool. And one of them said, hey, you remember my co-founder, uh, who you met uh, uh it was almost 10 years ago at the time, Mark. And I said, yeah, kind of. Uh, he said, well, Mark has just been, uh, I don't know what Mark's working on. I know he's, he's got a bunch of ideas. You should talk to him because he likes hardware. So Mark and my friend Rick had just had a $110 million exit. So, you know, not too shabby. <clears throat> we sat down, the three of us sat down to lunch together. And I said, so, uh, Rick tells me you've been working that you like hardware. And Mark said, yeah. And I said, what have you been doing since we, uh, since in the, uh, the interim, uh, I forgot one important piece. I told him this idea about a laser cutter and how we could make it beautiful and easy to use and simple and put it on a desktop or this vision of how it could be done. And I said, what have you been working on? He kind of looked at me surprised and he said, well, actually I've been building a combination milling machine, plasma torch, 3d printer, and laser cutter in my garage over the past year. And I said, well, well, that's a remarkable coincidence. Did you know this, Rick? And Rick said, no, no, I didn't know that's what you were doing. And, uh, and I said, when you say building, you mean like a kit? And he looked at me and kind of raised one eyebrow and said, no, no, I don't mean a kit. <laughs> and I later thing, it is, you know, the size of a bathroom and a massive piece of machinery that he designed and fabricated from scratch just to make things for himself, just as an invention to make things at home. And we started talking about what it would be like if that kind of fabrication technology was available to everyone. We started talking about how we both had engineering backgrounds. I didn't do very much with mine and Mark did a lot more with his, but how that had given us both the ability to create things, how there were tens of thousands or more of aspiring board game designers in the world, but that I got to actually make a board game because I know how things are made. So I knew to call up the factory and talk to them about, you know, production design for manufacturing and, and this sort of thing. I got to bring my vision to life because I had the ability to make things and how increasingly rare in our society that was and how bizarre it is that we homo sapiens, a species of tool users, now consider it to be an oddity or an exception 
when somebody knows how to make things. It's like, you know, if I draw an analogy with cooking, it's like we're all eating frozen TV dinners. Nobody has a kitchen anymore. And it's considered a quaint hobby if you make your food for yourself. And it shouldn't be that way. It's a byproduct of history that it's that way. It's a byproduct of technology shortcomings that just in the past couple hundred years, we went from a, a, a world where for all of human existence, you made things yourself or in your community and you made them for the purpose that you needed them. And just a few hundred years ago, we switched to this business of stuff's made halfway around the world and shipped on container ships and put on trucks and driven to your door. That's not right. That's just a byproduct of technology that technology hasn't caught up to let us make things for ourselves. And that's what we're excited about, about giving everybody that advantage, that empowerment that Mark and I had to be able to bring your vision to life and to see what you dream of come to life with tools that work for you, that are that kind of easy and approachable. And that, that was the foundational moment when we decided to start Glowforge. And since you're already both trillionaires, you didn't need to read or raise any money that changes the whole game. How did you go about <laughs> yeah, what was not, your next not, step then? I, I you know, you hired a staff of 4,000 day two. Okay. You Normally know, we're, uh, us were, you know, us mortals are writing business plans, trying to raise money, but you trillionaires do it differently. I've been told. So what do you do next? I, Dan? I, I've, I've been told as well. You know, there's, uh, there's a speck of truth in, in what you just said. And the speck of truth is that anytime somebody says, how did you raise money for Glowforge? I sigh and I go, you know what? When I was raising money for Antella, my first company, which later became Photobucket, I was so frustrated. I went nine months of trying to raise the first dollar with no success. And I promised myself that when I cracked this nut, when I figured out how to do it, I would share the answer with the world. I was not going to gatekeep this because, because more companies should exist. And, you know, mixed results. First, when I did figure it out, I said, well, that just mostly looks like persistence and luck. I don't know that I ever found any secret. That's the bad news. The good news is I actually uh, about five years ago sat down and wrote the book to share that knowledge. It's called Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook. And it is a very pragmatic, here's how to go start. Here, here are ways, here are tools and approaches to go start your first company. Here's the pros and cons of angel and venture backed and um, uh, how to construct a pitch deck, what works and what doesn't. Um, tons of interviews of um, startup founders, both successful and unsuccessful, because not enough people talk about how many startups fail and how, how challenging that can be, and put all that perspective into place specifically so that I would have that, you know, that gift to pay forward of knowledge and wisdom. Because when I said there's a kernel of truth to, to uh, you know, wish I was a trillionaire who could do it differently, but the kernel of truth is fundraising for your fourth company. It's useless information. Like, how did I do it? I called up 30 people and said, hey, I'm doing something new. Do you want to make an angel investment? And like 29 of them said, yes. That's not helpful to anybody. And it's only the fact that, you know, and I had been around this many times before that that was possible. But that's not because like I'm somehow special or, you know, that, that I know some magic trick. It's just because it was the fourth time around. The first time is a 
it is incredibly hard. I have every advantage. Like I'm a white guy in an industry that prizes that and rewards it disproportionately. I I was, this is my first company. I was in a hot space and it was cloud services for mobile and everything else. And it still took me nine months to clear the first dollar. It's incredibly challenging. And it's demotivating when you're beating your head against that fundraising wall. But gosh, my experience, it's just that kind of hard. And unless you have the, the experience or, you know, the trillion dollars, where that first first funding experience is is really 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 challenging. Yes, it is. The first company I tried to raise money for, Dan, we uh, the company was effectively bankrupt. We spent the money and then went and tried to raise it to pay for what we had already done. And investors don't like that. No, they didn't. They did. <laughs> that is that is one of those things that you know. Um, I wish like, you know, we wish people would give us those lessons because somebody could say that from the very start who knew, but that information is too often gate kept and people don't, don't learn that sort of stuff until it's too late. Dan, how do we find out more? Follow you online. Get us on. I am on uh, Twitter or X or whatever it's called now as Dan Shapiro and just go to glowforge.com and you can see the beauty that is the new Glowforge aura, the power that is our, uh, performance series and watch some amazing videos and dream about what you and your loved ones might be able to create together. Fantastic. Dan, it's an amazing story. Thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. And we hope you'll come back. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And we'll be back in just a second with Mara Thomas to talk about her new book. Everyone wants to work here. We'll be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so very much for being with us. I'm very excited to welcome back to the show, a fantastic resource for productivity, getting things done, and also making your business sexy so that everyone wants to work there. Please welcome back Maura Thomas. She is known for her proprietary system called Empowered Productivity. It's been embraced by NASA and Dyson and Google. She's a TEDx speaker and author of six books, including the Regain Your Time, which I think is also the name of her business. She's been named a top leadership speaker by Inc. Magazine and posts regularly with Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Washington Post, a lot of other places. Her new book has just come out. It's called Everyone Wants to Work Here, Attract the Best Talent, Energize Your Team, and Be the Leader in Your Market. It's five-star rated on that Amazon site. Maybe you've heard of it. Maura, welcome. How are you doing? Jim, I'm so happy to be back on School for Startups. Thanks for having me. I am excited to get caught up, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, received. I'm very excited about the reception, and I was really excited to get this information out in the world because I think it makes a difference. Thanks very much. All right, so before we talk about Everyone wants to work here. Let's talk about productivity just a little bit. Today I've been I wrote down a list of things to do today. I'm going straight down the list and just crossing it off when it's done, trying to minimize distractions. How am I doing? Yeah, you're on the right track. I think that um most people most people really try to remember what they need to do in their head, maybe supplemented by things Things like paper lists and sticky notes and flagged emails and appointments with ourselves in our calendar. 
So definitely writing things down where you can see it is a good step, first step, because you can only really organize what you can see, and you can only see it when it's outside your head. So that's a great start. Um, If you don't have everything in one place, if there are things that aren't on your list, if you have things that are flagged in your email and appointments on your calendar and on a sticky note and in a different notebook and in some sort of app or spreadsheet or document, then I would say... Um, one thing to ratchet things up a little bit might be to get everything in one place because then you can sort and organize and prioritize and keep track of it. And that's usually easier to do in a digital task manager than it is on paper. But you're definitely on the right track. Well, I have to have it on paper or I'm just an old-fashioned guy. I need it on paper. and I, I, like, I really like crossing it off much more than checking it off. There's no primal satisfaction in checking something off. You have to cross it off. <laughs> well, some some digital task managers allow you, it will make a little sound. Oh, and, really? And and some will even show a little animation on the screen like, woohoo, good for you. So you can get that satisfaction. There's also a whole bunch of other, I get that you're used to paper and I was used to paper too. And there is a time and place to write things down, but I think trying, we have so much to do, right? Paper is finite, and then you have to go to another piece of paper, and then you have to turn the paper over, and then you ha- try to squeeze things onto the paper, and then you're, you've got arrows and stars and colored highlighters all over the paper, and then you've got to write the paper over because it's a mess, and paper can't remind you of things, and it's hard to have paper with you all the time, and it's hard to share things that are on your piece of paper, and you can't back up paper, so... I hear you. The paper has its place, but I think you would gain some efficiency if you move to a digital, a digital tool. Well, I have like eight different digital to-do list things, and I need a to-do list of my to-do list apps. Well, so yes, and here's the thing: it's not the tool that matters; it's how you use the tool. So, if you have eight different ones and none of them are serving you, it's not. It's probably not because the tool isn't helpful. It's because you didn't have the right system to use the tool, right? That would be like saying if you just went out and and bought a high end set of golf clubs, that you would just be automatically be a PGA pro. But it doesn't work that way, right? A PGA pro knows how to use their golf clubs in a way that you don't know how to use those golf clubs. It's not the tools that matter. Once you know how to play golf, any clubs will do. It's not the tools. It's how you use the tools that makes the difference. So I'm interested to get your thought on my little story here that I'm about to tell on paper. I've been doing the show for about 11 years now, and I take notes in a black notebook. It's a sketch pad, actually, that uh, you know it has blank pages, and I had a little stamp made that I used, and then it stamps the generic stuff and then i fill it in with each guest and i've been doing that for 11 years and i have a stack now of all of these books and on the end i have the date written and when people come into my radio room invariably mara of all the things for them to go oh wow oh wow that stack of books is what they invariably pick out and go wow that's interesting why is that what's what's going on there Well, I think a lot of people perhaps don't um, chronicle as much physically as we used to, right? I think if probably if you had a set of anything like that, whether it was diaries or, right, people would be like, wow, that's 
that's quite an endeavor. So what I would say, again, if you want to gain a little bit of efficiency, um, taking notes, I said there's a, there's a time and place for writing things down. And taking notes is definitely that place. But now we are in a place where um, digital handwriting, the technology has advanced a lot. And now if you, if you got some sort of digital tablet, like a, um, an app on an iPad or um, there's something called a remarkable tablet where you can handwrite notes, but you can save them digitally. And that way you can find what you need easily because it's all digitized and it's searchable. And in some cases, many of these tools will even convert horrible handwriting to text. So then yeah, I have doctor's handwriting, Maura, so I don't know that anyone could look at it other than me. So You know, the tools learn, right? AI now is getting so advanced. The tools learn your handwriting. My husband also has horrible handwriting, and, and his, the one that he uses recognizes what he is saying, and it just gets better and better over time. So I think that um, you might find that it's a different experience if you haven't tried it in a while. All right, let's talk about the new book, Everyone Wants to Work Here. Congratulations, it's five-star rated. So obviously this is the time for this book with no one wanting to go back to physical work and also people quiet quitting and all of that. And now apparently nothing is more important than my mission statement. You know, I have this little gizzard company here and we make the world's best gizzards, but apparently. Um, I have to solve the world's problems too. So mm-hmm. boy, I'm challenged by all of this right now. HR sucks. <laughs> it is, um, you know, human beings are messy. And so managing human beings can be messy. But this book, so m- most of my other books, four out of my five other books are about personal productivity and how individuals can be more effective. And when I talk about productivity, what I mean is achieving significant results. So how much progress you make on the results that are significant to you in a day, that's what productive means. And so most of my books are about individuals. This book is about how leaders can empower their teams to have more days where everybody in the company goes home at the end of the day and says, oh my gosh, that was such a good day. I got so much done. Instead of what happens to most people every day, at the end of the day, they say to themselves, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I was busy all day and somehow I got nothing done. So the book is about helping people achieve more of the former and, and fewer days of the latter situation. And so it's about um, the, the mistakes, the problems in the culture and the, and the inadvertent mistakes that leaders make that actually undermine the team's ability to do their best work and to get their most important stuff done in a day. How is it there are some bosses, and I'm not using the word leader there on purpose, but they are bosses that are, just create chaos around them. Their entire organization is chaotic and it's always disaster mode. Obviously, that's the boss's fault. What are they doing wrong? What are, what's the mistake they're doing? Yeah, I think one common mistake is that the, the world feels really fast world feels like everybody needs everything immediately. And we, in order to be, to please our customers, we have to respond fast. And 
you know, if I just want, if I don't want to just be good at my job, right? You're telling me to be good at my job. I need to be fast, but I don't want to just be good. I want to be the best that I can be. So that means I have to be the fastest version of fast, which is immediate. And so I have to answer everything immediately in order to be good for my job at my job. And so that just speeds everything up. And human beings are not their best selves when they are moving at 90 miles an hour and they don't have any space in their day and they don't have any time to think, right? We can't apply the full range of our knowledge and our wisdom and our skills and abilities, but also our, our humor and our kindness and our empathy. We can't apply those things in, you know, one minute increments, that, which is all we get in our day. I have to hurry up and get off the phone and I have to hurry up and answer the next call and I have to hurry up and respond to emails that are coming in and the text messages and the chats and I have to do all of this right now. And so I think the mistakes that bosses make is that, um, is that we get sucked into this speed, speed as a metric of success and speed really... I mean, anybody can be fast. That's not a differentiator. That's not unique, right? If you, if I think if you want to stand out, if you want your company to stand out, you want people to be accurate and thorough and creative and present. And all of those things are really incompatible with fast. All right. So is it as simple as saying we no longer measure time or we still measure time, but we're going to give you a lot of uh slack there or how i mean i can't say yeah. time is no longer relevant because then we'll end up at the other extreme where it takes someone four days to get a two-line memo out yeah no we'll you get like government be, speed right so we want to achieve things as quickly and as efficiently as we can you want something to take only as long as it takes and no longer than that so quickly but efficiently and the, the most important way that we can be both quick and efficient is when we can do one thing at a time. But our very demanding fast place work environment seems like the only way for us to keep up is to keep, is to multitask, right? To switch, right? I'm on the phone, but I'm also just trying to read the email because I have to respond to that email right away. And, you know, I won't be off the phone for a little while or I won't be off this meeting for a little while, So, I, but I have to respond to this text message and that chat and that email. So I have to be doing them all at the same time. And so when you're trying to do all of those things at the same time, you're not really present in any of them. And when you are not really present in any of them, you make mistakes and everything takes longer. Research shows that when we are switching what we're doing, everything takes longer and the quality is lower. In some cases, 44% more mistakes when we are task switching. So if you want to do things as quickly and as efficiently as you can, then you should do one thing at a time. Okay. What if I'm doing my emails and to do my emails, I have to fill out this form, which requires that I calculate my monthly expenses. Yeah. Right. So, right. So you, two, two, two things that you have to do, right? When you're, so most people trying to stay on top of their email by just reading every message as it arrives, but this is really inconvenient and it's, um, it's ineffective. A better way is to keep your email closed, except when you decide it's time to do your email. And when you decide it's time to do your email, your goal in that moment is to empty your inbox. And so you either do the message, if you can, 
if you can dispatch the message quickly, it just requires a quick response or it doesn't require any response and you can just delete it, whatever, then great. If it if it requires more than a couple of minutes of your attention, then you need to add it to your task list. And, and then you do it at the appropriate time. But when you're dealing with your email, the goal in that moment is to finish your email. And also the only way that you can finish your email in that moment is if you stop the new messages from arriving. So whether that's working offline or whether that's using a tool like um, Inbox Pause, but you ha- get all the messages that you have since the last time that you checked your email, but then go offline or pause your inbox read what's there, deal with what's there, and then move on to something else for an hour or so. So, Laura, am I now allowed to tell my wife, you can't bother me right now. Maura says that I have to finish this task first. But, honey, I'll add you to my to-do list. You're number 93. 93. No, no. What you what what I recommend you do, and this comes from one of my earlier books called Attention Management: How to um, Gain Success and Productivity Every Day. That in that book, I talk about controlling your environment. So the idea there is, you need a signal for other people that says, "Don't ask me if I have a second right now. I don't." Um, if just come back when this signal is no longer up, whether that's a flag on your computer monitor, whether that's um, a closed door, whether that's headphones or whatever. It just says to people, please don't interrupt me right at this minute, unless it's an emergency. But if it's not an emergency, please just give me a minute, finish what I'm doing. Some people will even hang like a dry erase board or a pad of sticky notes on their door that says, don't interrupt me right now, but jot down what you need. I'll come find you. And we'll set up a time to chat, and I'm happy to help you. Just let me just finish what I'm doing. Or when I was a kid, my father was on call a lot and wasn't really able to leave town, but they still wanted to get away. So one weekend, they went to one of the new hotels downtown and uh, got someone to stay with us. And I don't know, Sunday morning at about 530 in the morning, our brand new fire alarm went off and 10 fire trucks showed up and everything. and they assured us that the house was not on fire and I was, you know, reveling in the responsibility of being left, you know, not alone, but, uh, as the man of the house, so to speak. And so I thought that the wise thing to do at now six o'clock on Sunday morning was to call my parents and wake them up and let them know that their house was in fact, not on fire. <laughs> That's an important job. So urgency and we need to go a little fast. We, we only have a minute on each topic left. I have 18 more questions. I want to go urgency. How do I get more or get rid of urgency? Now that I've just told you we're in the urgent time format, how do I get out of that at my company? Is it the same as fast? seems to me there's a difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Two ways. Well, three ways really. So the first way is we need to make sure that we are, we, we need to question assumptions, right? So we assume that our customers will be happy if we respond immediately. Question that assumption because may, maybe what they really want from you is a thorough, accurate solution to their problems, not the fastest response that you can give them. Question, question that. Number two is how can you um, give them what they want but in a way that doesn't disrupt the team every minute of every day? And... 
also when when we're trying to you you might have to change the way that your company operates. So, for example, a customer service person's idea uh, job might be to answer the messages as they arrive. But if the customer service person's job is to answer the message but also solve the problems in the messages, then they have to have time away from the the, the taking in the messages to do the solving. Did you ever see the, um, the I Love Lucy episode with the chocolates on the assembly line? And she starts putting them down her shirt and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hysterical. Exactly. Yes. Right? That's what we do to our, our employees by trying to um, get them to to, you know, service the customers as fast as possible. So we want to make sure that we are meeting our customers' needs, but in a way that is thoughtful and proactive and and solves their problems in a meaningful way. In the book, you talk about a, a formula to empower teams. Is that something that we can talk about? Real fast? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we maybe don't have time to go into all four steps of the formula, but the first step of, of the formula, I think, is most important. So leaders say to me all the time, it is my job to be available to my team, but my team needs me all day long. So I can never manage my attention. I can never get done the important things on my to-do list because I am always busy answering questions and helping people. So I think that it's important to consider that sometimes being too available to your team is as bad as being completely unavailable to your team because you might be undermining them and you might be preventing them um, the opportunity to learn. So the first step in the formula that I think really is the most important is to try using a phrase like this one a little bit more often. The phrase is, I trust your judgment. And if you tell your employees that, then they start to take more responsibility for their own jobs. They start to solve their own problems. They start to figure out things on their own. And then you are still available to help them at a later date. But the point is that you're not teaching them that, yes, every time you have a little speed bump in your day, you bring it to me and we'll solve it together. You need your employees to do their job so that you can do your job. And the phrase, I trust your judgment, helps with that a lot. I love that. That does... Uh, resonate. And also I think it's going to make them feel empowered and important exactly. and all of that. I was thinking about kids as you were describing that it's the same with kids. Uh, that's right. That's right. All right. Remote versus hybrid versus the hell of going back downtown. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to go downtown again. I think office buildings are, are really going to take a big hit. What are your thoughts on how I should manage this, this demand that my employees have that they work at home. But damn it, we work better together. What yeah. are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think there isn't a one-size-fits-all. Some businesses really require, I mean, right, you can't do, if you're a server at a restaurant, you can't do that remotely, right? Um, but for those, for, for knowledge work business, business that is done really through the brain power of the employees, right? It's really just about I'm thinking about things and I'm creating ideas and I'm solving problems and I'm communicating with people. That kind of work certainly can be done uh, remotely, but it's really, you have to, you work differently remotely than you do when you are in person. And there's a whole chapter of everybody wants to work here. Everyone wants to work here about how to, um, change your communication for a remote work environment. 
And but to me, the bottom line is really it's not about where you work. It's about how you work. And if you're managing your attention and you are being, you're managing your attention and you are being intentional about the way you operate, then whether you're in person or remote doesn't really matter. It just requires a different, a different approach to business. Hybrid work versus totally in person versus um, fully remote, they all require different considerations and you have to be intentional about how you operate. I'm never going to believe that people are as effective at home. Just never going to believe that because I've lived it. Because you know what? I'm not as effective at home because I know <laughs> what I do. You know? Yeah. yeah. And so. Well, yep. I mean, some people's home environment is much less distracting than their work environment. So it's great. Some people's home environment is much more distracting than their work environment. So it's a real challenge. Some people can't wait to to leave home to get work done. So it really just depends. There's really no one size fits all. And every person is different too. Yep. Maura, sum it up for us. Give us uh, a short paragraph to summarize the world of new work. Where are we? Uh, again, it's, it's really about being intentional. I think the most underrated challenge facing busy professionals and facing organizations today, the most underrated challenge is the challenge of distraction. And I think that it's underrated because we have decided that this is just the way the world is. And we just have to figure out how to, how to get by in spite of all of this constant distraction. But I reject that idea. And the book is full of, of ways that I that I empower people to reject that notion as well, because when it comes down to it, no one can control your attention except you. If you are distracted, that is on you. If you are present and focused, that is also within your control. So that's really the, in all my books, really, it's a message about managing your attention and how empowering that is. And that's the message that I'm, that I'm trying to get out into the world. All right. Mara, I heard you were willing and able to play our little game, the quick 10. Sure. Excellent. Absolutely. Excellent. Are you currently sober? State law. You're in Texas, right? I am in Texas. Yeah. State law requires that I find out if you're sober. Are you currently sober? <laughs> I am sober. Okay. I will Absolutely. let Greg Abbott know that. Would you like to accept the standard wager? The standard wager. What's the standard wager? The bet that everyone else makes. I don't know. Can That's I get yes. to hear what it is before Number I Number one, your favorite it? creativity hack. Excellent. Brain priming. Plant a seed. Plant a seed, and your brain will figure out how to make that seed grow. Plant a seed, walk away. Number two, favorite bootstrapping trick. Mastermind groups. Number three, name your top passions. Being on or near the ocean, uh, playing pickleball lately, and uh, organizing and participating in groups with really interesting people. Number four, the first three steps in starting a business are? Clearly define your products and services and your pricing so that it makes it easy for your customers and clients to buy what you're selling. Clearly explain the problem and how you solve it. And set up your financial books 
properly from the beginning. Number five, the best way to get your first real customer is? Networking. Number six, your dreamiest technology is? Teleportation. Beam me up, Scotty. Number seven, your best entrepreneurial advice? Join your industry association. Don't try to go it alone. Number eight, worst entrepreneurial mistake? Not defining your target market clearly and trying to serve everyone. Number nine, favorite entrepreneur and why? Lydia Estes Pinkham. Her, she was a healer to women in the 1800s because their medical problems were dismissed by male doctors. Interesting. Number 10, favorite superhero? The bionic woman. Ooh, I love Lindsay Wagner. She's not really a superhero. She just used her powers for good. I love it. Yes. Fantastic. Mara, while we calculate your score and find out the winner of the wager, how do we find out more? Follow you online. Get a copy of Everyone Wants to Work Here. Yeah, the best place to start is my website, marathomas.com, M-A-U-R-A-T-H-O-M-A-S. Dot com and there you can find books, you can find links to my articles, you can find um, resources to help you free online courses and free all kinds of free resources, morathomas.com. Fantastic. I'm just kind of procrastinating now until, oh, I have been given your score. Oh, Mara, I am so disappointed for you. You got a 94, a 94, which is an excellent, excellent score, but you have to have a 95 to win. Uh, one of our judges is uh, Novak Jovak, the tennis player, and he really dinged you on that tennis or the paddle ball comment, saying that that's oh, not a ball. real sport. Uh-huh. Just dinged you for that. <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, you lose the wager uh, despite your excellent answers, and you owe us a Tesla. So, we're excited for that. Thank you. you they make you know it right it's, there in Texas. You're close. It's, it's on its way. So you just watch, watch for that tracking. Uh-huh. There's the efficiency right there. Productivity in action. Uh-huh. Or thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. Jim, this is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're out of time, but you know what? We're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Thanks to our great guest today. Thank you, great listeners. Go make a million dollars. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye now.